there's been a lot of questions about hypergrace, and I just really felt like that uh, needed to try to explain it as best I could. Uh, technically, the, the term was coined by those who do not understand the gospel of hypergrace. Uh, it was a derogatory term. We've always got labels for everything. Uh, so they, uh, they termed it hypergrace. Well, hyper to them means too much, you know, too, too much grace. Well, we know that's not the biblical definition. You know, the, the Bible defines it as superabundant. And we'll get into that a little further down, but just wanted to let you know that's where it come from. When I was working on this, however, I realized that as I was putting this together originally, I was just kind of regurgitating everything that Dorman said about, he's been preaching about for the last three years. And I thought, well, that's not going to really clarify things to this body anyways, because it's things that you already heard. So I needed to get some outside perspective, so to speak. So I found a couple of books. And uh, one of them was written by a Messianic Jew, and the other one was written by a hyper-grace preacher that actually responded to this Messianic Jew's book. So it was kind of some good information. Uh, some of it was pretty way out there, and some of it was, was right on. Um, in reading the book by the Messianic Jew, uh, he's also a university professor that teaches Jewish apologetics. Well... Apologetics, if you don't know, is basically defense of a faith. And I thought, how in the world can you be a Messianic Jew proposing to know Jesus and still defend the Jewish faith? Me, it just didn't, didn't quite mix. And I'd really like to understand the inner workings of, of those, that group a lot better. And uh, I hope that, I was hoping Brother John would be here, but Brother John O'Brien, I want you to help us understand that. So if you're listening to this, Please put something together so that we can better understand those people. Well, there's a large contingent of people who are lashing out against the gospel of grace. Uh, there's tons of articles out there, and basically what they're saying is it's a dangerous teaching. It's a false message. It's a hopped-up, watered-down, seeker-friendly gospel. And those that preach it are labeled as false prophets, antichrists, and pied pipers leading people to hell. That's what the world thinks about the gospel of exchange or hyper grace. So to understand this, I thought we need to understand grace a little bit. You know, Jesus never defined grace. The Lord of all grace who came from the throne of grace, full of his Father's grace, and from whom we receive grace upon grace, never uttered the word grace. Actions spoke much louder than words, and Jesus showed us through his life each and every day. Jesus ate with sinners and Pharisees, he reached out to fifth, filthy foreigners. He told stories of radical grace, defined, defended the guilty, and forgave the unrepentant. And in the greatest demonstration of love the world has ever seen, he gave his life so that we might have life. Paul may have been the original hyper-grace preacher, for he made no distinction between the gospel of grace and the gospel of Christ. Grace is not a doctrine, it is a person, and his name is Jesus. Amen. Grace is not just one of God's blessings, but it's all blessings wrapped into one, and that is Jesus. If grace is Jesus, then what is hyper-grace? Some would say that's a meaningless phrase, like wet water or sunny sunshine. Others say that hyper-grace is greasy grace, which is bad. 
Still others say it's abundant grace, which is good. Surprisingly, those who term the phrase hypergrace very seldom ever define it. So while most of you think that hypergrace is a bad thing, I say that it's a good thing. It's extreme grace. It's over-the-top grace. It's grace on steroids. God isn't cheap when it comes to lavishing his grace upon his people. For example, the thirsty man gets to drink from Niagara Falls. The word Paul uses for describing grace is superabounding. That's made up of two Greek words, hooper, from which we get the term hyper, which means over, beyond, and above, and parasuo, which means superabundant in quality or superior in quality. So, to say that God's grace is superabundant only takes you halfway there. It's more than that. It's over, beyond, and above superabundant. It's super, superabundant or hyper, hyper grace. The hyper grace of God cannot be reduced to words or thoughts that fill in, fill in, fit into our minds. It's simply too big. The only way we can begin to grasp it is to see the splendor and awesomeness of God that he has revealed through his son, Jesus Christ. Basically, you have messages that teach the old man grace, which will be called in this the mixed grace gospel, and you have messages that teach new man grace, which is hyper grace. Hyper grace to us is strictly new man grace, plain and simple. So from this, we can actually identify three gospels. There's a graceless gospel. You're saved by works and sanctified by works. Mixed grace gospel. You're saved by grace, but sanctified by works. And then there's hyper grace gospel. You're saved by grace and sanctified by grace. So what is a graceless gospel? Well, there's really no such thing. It is grace that makes the good news good news. You remove grace and good news ceases to be good. Someone once said, grace isn't the most important thing in Christianity. It is the only thing. Since Jesus is just, I mean, grace is just another word for Jesus. So what is a mixed grace gospel? It's the message that you're saved by grace, but kept through works. It's the belief that says one of God's blessings, salvation, comes by grace, but all the other stuff, holiness, forgiveness, fellowship, etc., comes through works. This is a partial gospel because it's only partially good news. Jesus saved you, that's the good part, but the rest is up to you, that's the bad part. That's what the mixed grace gospel says. And what about the hyper grace gospel? It's Jesus plus nothing. It's Christ alone. It's the announcement that Jesus is the author and finisher of your faith and that he will keep you and present you faultless to himself. A mixed grace gospel combines the unmerited favor of God with the merited wage of human effort. You're saved by grace, but you maintain your position through right living. This is an example of a, of a mixed grace message. God gives you grace so that you can keep his commandments is another. These sort of messages contain an element of grace, but are ultimately push you to trust yourself and your own efforts. Any mixed grace message can be recognized by the presence of carrots and sticks. Carrots are the blessings you get for obedience, and sticks are the penalties you pay for disobedience. 
The modern mixed grace message offers the following carrots. If you confess, you'll be forgiven. If you do right, you'll be accepted. If you act holy, you'll be holy. And what happens if you don't do these things? What are the sticks of the mixed grace gospel? Fail to perform, and according to the prevailing codes of conduct, you'll lose your forgiveness. You'll lose your fellowship, and if worse comes to worse, you will lose your salvation. Why do people buy into this mixed grace message? They do it because it seems right and fair to them. Their whole lives they've been told, if you do good, you'll get good. If you do bad, you'll get bad. Some people call this living under the law. Others call it karma, but it's sowing to reap, and that has nothing to do with grace. Sowing and reaping has its place, but sowing to reap is not grace. Another reason why some people buy into the mixed grace gospel is because they feel obligated to prove their worth to God. Jesus died for you, they hear. What will you do for him? That's a really bad question to ask because there's absolutely nothing we can do to compensate Jesus for what he did. Since a mixed grace message puts the emphasis on you and what you've done, your identity becomes defined by your productivity. You will start to think of yourself as God's servant instead of his beloved son or daughter. Worst of all, you'll end up distracted from Jesus and fallen from grace. Don't swallow any poison that comes with a spoonful of grace, and don't subscribe to any message that leads you to trust yourself or your works instead of Jesus and his. To paraphrase Watchman Nee, you can try or you can trust the difference is heaven and hell. Say that again. You can try or you can trust the difference is heaven and hell. The hyper-grace gospel is easy to recognize, for it is nothing more than boasting about Jesus, who he is and what he has done, and what he can now do because of what he has done. If the message you're hearing causes you to fix your eyes on Jesus and moves you to shout for joy and give thanksgiving and praise for all he's done, chances are you're hearing a hyper-grace gospel. While a mixed-grace gospel is recognized by the presence of carrots and sticks, the hyper-grace gospel is marked by invitations. Here's just one. Come to me, all you are weary, and I will give you rest. Rest. A mixed-grace gospel drives people to the law, but a hyper-grace gospel draws people with love. In a quest for holiness, a mixed-grace preacher may preach a little law, a little self-help, or a little pop psychology, but it's all just a flesh trip. In contrast, a hyper-grace preacher preaches Christ alone. Whatever your need, whether it's salvation or sanctification, your supply is found in the one who promises to meet all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. The hyper-grace gospel is simple. You don't need to understand or read Hebrew or Greek to get it. Nor do you need to go to seminary or Bible school. To paraphrase Joseph Prince, the hyper-grace gospel is so simple, it takes theologians to complicate it. Do you hear that? The hyper-grace gospel is so simple, it takes theologians to complicate it. There may be a thousand and one versions of the mixed-grace gospel, but there is only one 
hyper-graced gospel, and that is God loves you. Okay? Now that I want to go into what the world really says about the hyper-grace gospel, there's about 12 things that have come to light, and I hope I can get through this. looks like my time's doing pretty well, but basically the world's saying that hyper-grace preachers are against repentance. Repentance is one of the words that means different things to different people. Those who perform, who are performance-oriented typically interpret repentance as turning from sin. It's something you do, turn, as a result of something that you have done, sinned. It's fixing what you broke. It's atoning for your mistakes. It's sowing fig leaves to hide your shame. In contrast, faith-based repentance is always done in response to something God has done. It's the exchange of heart and mind that happens when you encounter His grace. Amen. A mixed-grace gospel will define repentance in terms of a prescribed set of behaviors, turning from sin or emotions, sorrow and grief, but insisting on the proper way to repent is tantamount to putting people back under the law. The fruit of repentance may take 101 different forms. Don't limit God, but repentance itself is simply an exchange of mind or the way you think. That's what the word literally means. Hyper-grace preachers are against confession. Like the word repentance, confession is a word that has been mangled in the machinery of man-made religion. Instead of bringing healing to the hurting and life to the dead, confession is seen as the cost of admission into the house of grace. You want to be clean? Then fess up, you miserable sinner. Tell God your little dirty secrets. But that's not what confession is. To confess literally means to agree or say the same thing as another. Biblical confession is agreeing with God. It's verbalizing faith in His goodness and acknowledging your dependence on Him. It's saying, God, I believe you are faithful and true and will do what you've promised. But some people have a different definition of confession. They think confession is something you must do to make yourself clean, righteous, and forgiven. I have to review all of my sins before receiving forgiveness. But this is a dead work. Confessing to be forgiven is like washing with dirty water. No matter how hard you scrub, you won't make yourself clean. Faithless confession puts the focus on you and what you have done. But faith-based confession puts the focus on Christ and what He has done on your behalf. We don't repent and confess to God to forgive us. We repent and confess because God has already forgiven us. Those who don't understand this always point to John 1.9, which seems to say that forgiveness is contingent upon our confession of sins. The scripture has been so widely misunderstood that it gets mentioned in about every book on grace. When you sin, it takes no faith to beat yourself up and agree with the accuser who calls you a sinner. It takes no faith to look at the cross. It takes faith to look at the cross and say, "Thank you Jesus for carrying all my sins." It takes faith to praise your father for his superabounding grace that is greater than any of your transgressions. And it takes faith to agree with the Holy Spirit who says, despite what you did, 
you are still righteous, acceptable, and pleasing to God. A hyper-grace gospel is universalism in disguise. Now, you're going to hear some terms that maybe you haven't heard, but they've been around for a while. The hyper-grace gospel says all will be saved. A universalist is someone who believes all will be saved, including the devil. While it may be true that most universalists preach grace, it is not true that most grace preachers are universalists. So why are hyper-grace people and preachers and messages all mistaken for universalism? It may be because we say the whole world is forgiven. You see, that's universalism right there. You're saying everyone is saved. Well, wait a minute. Forgiveness doesn't equal salvation. Forgiveness simply means that God won't judge you for your sins. How can he? He's already judged all your sins on the cross. Why do I say that the whole world is forgiven? Because that's what the Bible says. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. To take away sin means to forgive. It's what the word forgive literally means. To send away, dismiss, let go. On the cross, Jesus took away your sin. Your sin is no longer the problem. It was a problem before Jesus dealt with it, but he did once and for all time when he died on the cross. Jesus didn't take away the sins of repentant churchgoers. He took away the sins of taxpayers, tax dodgers, hookers and hackers, phonies and Pharisees. He bore everyone's sin. Before the cross, Jesus preached conditional forgiveness to those who were born under the old covenant. But on the cross, he fulfilled all the requirements of the law so that you might live under this new covenant of grace. The unsighted joy of God's forgiveness keeps many Christians busy pursuing what they already possess. They hear muddled messages like, Jesus paid for your sins, but he hadn't forgiven you. And they are told, you need to repent and confess to complete that transaction. But the gospel of grace announces, forgiveness precedes repentance. The sinner accepted, the sinner is accepted before he pleads for mercy. It is already granted. He only needs to receive it. He has total amnesty and gratuitous pardon. God is not chasing you with a scorebook. He pursues you with grace. There is nothing you can do to make God forgive you because he's already done it. Your sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. Because of Jesus, God is no longer counting your sins against you. This is the hyper-grace gospel. Hyper-grace preachers say it's wrong to ask God for forgiveness. Beware the grace Pharisees who jump on you if you say something that smacks of unbelief and grace. They say it's sin to ask God for forgiveness. There is nothing wrong with coming to the throne of grace in your hour of need to receive mercy and find grace. If you need forgiveness, God has an ample supply. If asking helps you receive, then ask. It's not wrong to ask. What's wrong is telling people God won't forgive them unless they first do things like repent or confess. What's wrong is telling the poor and needy they got to pay to dine at the table of the Lord's abundance. What's wrong is putting price tags 
on the free gift of grace. But here's something that you may not appreciate. God will forgive you even if you don't ask. How do you know? How do you know? Because he's already done it. It's already done. From God's side, forgiveness is a done deal. There remains no more sacrifice for sin. But from our side, sin may be a big problem indeed. Many are crippled by guilt and condemnation. Others remain slaves to sin or incapable of making healthy choices. The solution is not to bind to the message of dead works. Try harder, turn from sin, beg God to forgive you. The The remedy is to receive grace that has been provided in Jesus Christ. Hyper grace preachers say that God is not grieved by your sin. Hyper grace preachers say God doesn't care when we sin. Actually, we say God cares very much because sin hurts the objects of his affection, us. Sin damages people, fractures friendships, and destroys family. Sin hurts you, and that makes your father sad. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. If we look at the sins that Paul listed there, they're all relational sins. They are the sins of quarreling, backbiting, and just being a jerk. When we act this way, we hurt the closest to us, and we make our Father sad. When we sin out of anger, Paul says, we give place to the devil and open the door to trouble. That doesn't make your father happy, and it won't make you happy either. If Jesus didn't care about the effects of sin, he would not have gone to the cross. Nor would he have warned the churches and revelations about their bad bad behavior and unhealthy habits. The gospel declares that God's love is unaffected by our choices, but it does not follow that we can act without consequences. If you don't understand the hyper-grace gospel, you may imagine the Holy Spirit to be the sheriff of heaven, recording all your sins and convicting you when guilty. You may see him as a prosecutor and a policeman, even though Jesus called him comforter and counselor. And that's who he truly is. Hyper-grace preachers are against the law. Hyper-grace preachers claim that God's law is bad and defective. They are opposed to his holy commands. Hyper-grace preachers are accused of being against the law because we preach what Paul preached, that we are not under the law, but grace is what we're under. We say that Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. Are hyper-grace preachers against the law? Not at all. We are 100% for the law and for the purpose that it was given. Joseph Prince speaks for all of us when he writes, One of the things I've been accused of is being antinomian. That's when someone is against the law of Moses. The truth is that I have the highest regard for the law. I am for the law for the purpose for which God gave the law. God did not give the law for us to keep. He gave the law to bring man to the end of himself so that he would see his need of a Savior. A mixed gospel mixes law and grace and reaps the benefits of neither. It promotes the law as a guide for living and treats grace as little more 
than a lubricant for greasing the cogs of self-effort. Those who buy into this message revealed their disregard for both law, since they cannot keep it, yet pretend to, and they disregard grace, since they would rather trust in their own efforts than Christ's magnificent work. Such a person is lukewarm. They have not yet yielded to either the cold and unbending demands of the law or the white-hot love and grace of their Father. Hyper-grace preachers ignore the Old Testament. Hyper-grace preachers would have you throw away most of your Bible, say the critics. They dismiss the Old Testament as irrelevant and useless. This is just not true. The Old Testament is epic in scope. It covers long periods between the creation of the world and the revival. Uh, start over. It covers the long period between the creation of the world and the arrival of Jesus. Somewhere in the middle of that period, Moses led the children to Israel to Mount Sinai, where they signed up for the old covenant. They asked for the old covenant. This is this was the law-keeping covenant that ran for fourteen centuries and was fulfilled on the cross. The New Testament writers make it plain that we are not to live under this old covenant because Jesus has forged a new and better covenant based on his grace. The old and new covenants are very different. The two covenants can be distinguished in terms of their language. Those who lived under the old covenant spoke with hunger and unfilled longing as they looked forward to Jesus. But we who live under the new covenant look back with gratitude, and speak a new language of thanksgiving and praise. We say things like, I have been crucified with Christ. I am a new creation. Or we would if we truly understood the significance of the cross. We are not to live by the old covenant, but that doesn't mean that we should rip it out of our Bibles. As long as we read the old with the eyes of the new, we will see, that we are, we'll see what we're supposed to see. And the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus preached from the Old Testament so that his disciples might see what was said concerning himself. And that's why we read the Old Testament, to see Jesus. Hyper-grace preachers say that the... Hyper-grace preachers disregard the words of Jesus... Hyper-grace preachers say the words of Jesus are not for us. They have no authority and are irrelevant to the modern church. One of the strangest claims that can be made against hyper-grace preachers is that we are dismissive of the pre-cross teachings of Jesus. The point, in fact, hyper-grace preachers are the only ones taking Jesus seriously. When Jesus is preaching law, we say that it's authentic law not to be taken lightly. And when Jesus is revealing grace, we bow in awestruck gratitude. We would not dare to reinterpret his words with qualifiers or caveats. This misperception that hyper-grace preachers reject the teaching of Jesus is based on a kernel of truth, which is everything Jesus said is good, but not everything Jesus said is good for you. Or put another way, Jesus spoke words the whole world needs to hear, but you are not the whole world. If you are self-righteous, then, a heart, then the harsh words of Jesus to the self-righteous are relevant to you. However, if you are not confident of your own righteousness, 
then you need to hear his promises of grace. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. What you hear in the words of Jesus reflects what's in your heart. The genius of Jesus is that he could speak to a crowd of people and connect with everyone at their point of need. A mixed-grace preacher reads the words of Jesus selectively, but a hyper-grace preacher values everything that Jesus said. He recognizes that Jesus is the perfect physician who always prescribes the perfect medicine. He gives law to the smug and grace to the needy. No matter who you are or where you are on your journey, Jesus has life-saving words for you. Hypergrace gospel encourages sin. Now, you're hearing all these things that people are saying about the hypergrace gospel. I just want to make sure that you're catching this. This is not what I'm saying. This is what the world says about hypergrace. The hypergrace gospel leads people to sin. Sinful living is the fruit of the modern grace message. For 2,000 years, those opposed to the gospel of grace have said it promotes sin and licentiousness. That's out of Romans. But grace is no more a license to sin than electricity is to electrocute yourself. Hypergrace preachers say it doesn't matter what you do. You can go on sinning. Actually, it does matter what you do because sin is destructive. Sin hurts people. But since we're not in the habit of drawing attention to other people's sin, I can understand how some believe this misperception. We talk about restoration, not what you did. Okay? That's not drawing attention to people's sin. Preach the scandalous grace of God, and some will misinterpret your message as an endorsement of sin. It's practically inevitable. But those who dismiss grace as a license to sin merely show their ignorance of it. As John Calvin said, how can the medicine that's supposed to kill the disease, grace, feed the sin, feed the disease, sin? How can the medicine that's supposed to kill the disease feed the disease? Hypergrace preachers are soft on sin. They don't condemn the sin that's right in front of them. The same accusation could be leveled at Jesus. An adulterous woman was brought to him for judgment, and he did not even mention her sin. Not once. Instead, he said, go and sin no more. Jesus wasn't making a threat. He was saying, Receive my gift of no condemnation and be set free from your sin. The issue for the abuser is not behavior but identity because one follows the other. What you do flows out of who you are. If you see yourself as a sinner, you'll sin. But if you see yourself as a dearly loved child of God, you won't. You'll gladly receive his grace that frees you from the dominion of sin. Jesus is grace. To abuse grace is to abuse Jesus. Those who love him would never do that. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. To say grace promotes sin is like saying Jesus promotes sin. It's slanderous at best and blasphemous at worst. Grace isn't permission to sin. It's the power of God to sin no more. Amen. It's not God's law that teaches us to say no to, God, to ungodliness. It is his grace. 
Those who seek to mix grace with law ruin the medicine that would otherwise set you free. Only God's pure and undiluted grace can turn a sinner into a saint, a hater into a lover, a Pharisee into an apostle. Stumble and sin in the mixed grace church and the message you will get, look at what you did. But a sinner in a hyper grace church will get the message. Look at what you did and what you can now do because of what he did. A mixed grace church will have you turn from every sin until you're a dizzy sinner. But a hyper grace church will do what Paul did with the sinning Corinthians and seek to reveal your true identity in Christ. We don't get victory over sin by striving to keep rules. We overcome sin by trusting Jesus who loves us and lives within us. So reckon yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ and be free. The hyper-grace gospel discourages obedience and holy living. Grace preachers may not be promoting sin, but neither are they challenging people to embrace a lifestyle of obedience to Jesus. Depends on your definition of obedience. If obedience you mean obeying the rules or else, then you're right. A grace preacher would not put a believer under law. Mixed grace preachers say, you got to obey God. But the bottom line is not whether you obey him, but whether you trust him. Grace preachers emphasize the love of God for the same reason Jesus did. Our Father's love is the root on which we grow. Obedience is not something we do to merit his love. It is the evidence that his love has been made complete in us. Another complaint made against the hyper-grace gospel is that it is unbalanced. It emphasizes only one teaching, grace, above all others. The all others are repentance, obedience, and holiness. But as we have seen, grace is not a teaching. Grace is a person, and his name is Jesus. In him is found all the wisdom and all the teaching you'll ever need. The hyper-grace preacher says, Jesus loves you, but that's only half the message. They don't tell you, they don't tell you about his words in John 4, 14, 15. If you love me, you will obey his command. A mixed grace preacher reads the words of Jesus backwards and says you must obey to prove your love. But obedience is a fruit, not a root. Amen. Jesus is making a promise, not a threat. He's saying that as you abide in the vine and bask in my love, he will bear his fruit in your life effortlessly. He will bear it. You're not doing it. He will. Do not have any doubts about God's requirements. He requires you to be holy with a W, holy. You're not getting in unless you are. But the hyper grace, pre the hyper grace gospel declares that the holiness you and I need is not found. Oh, hang on. Let me back up. I got that old. All right. Do not, do not have any doubts about God's requirement. He requires you to be holy, holy. You're not getting in unless you are holy. But the hyper-grace gospel declares that the holiness you and I both need is found in Jesus Christ. Sanctification is not a three-step process. It's a one-step process, and Jesus is the step. 
Do you see the difference? Under the old covenant, it was do to become. Act holy and you'll get holy. Although no one ever did. But under the new covenant, it's do because you are. Be holy because in Christ, you are holy and you are holy through and through. Grace preachers don't talk about hell or wrath. Hyper-grace preachers present an unbalanced view of God. They tell you about His love, but not about His wrath or judgment. They tell you about heaven, but not about hell. Contrary to what you may have heard, hyper-grace preachers do talk about hell, wrath, and judgment. But what we don't do is mix bad news with the good news. Jesus was not interested in scaring the hell out of people, but in inviting them all to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's not about what you have been saved from, but what you have been saved into. It is significant that in his summary of the gospel, Paul never mentions hell. By this gospel you are saved, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Indeed, Paul never mentions hell by name in any of his letters. Although Paul did preach on judgment and the coming wrath, he never used the fear of hell to push people into a loving relationship with Jesus. There is no fear in love. To place hell at the center of the gospel is to mischaracterize God as a vengeful punisher who sends his people to hell when in truth he is a loving father who saves his kids from hell of their own choices. He saves us from the hell of our own choices. The hyper-grace gospel makes people lazy. Grace is a soft gospel for soft Christians. Grace promotes passivity and laziness. It does? Then I guess somebody forgot to tell Paul. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than any of them, Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. I didn't make this happen, Paul said. God and I did it together. Grace doesn't make people lazy. It makes them productive and supernaturally fruitful. In contrast with the law that provides no aid to those who trust it, grace makes you sore. Grace is irresponsible For it says that we have not responsibility for anything we do. We have a duty to serve the Lord. In the mouth of a mixed grace preacher, words like responsibility and duty are the cattle prods of performance-based Christianity. They convey a sense of obligation that leaves you debt conscious rather than grace conscious. Jesus didn't suffer and die to put you in his debt. He did it all to show you how much he loves you. The idea that you are obliged to repay him for his priceless sacrifices is absolutely ludicrous. What can you give him in consideration for his grace? There is nothing. The instant you give him anything, it ceases to be grace. Your only duty is to say, thank you, Jesus. 
In a mixed-race environment, you will feel the pressure to perform and live up to the expectations of others. But walk under pure grace, and you will find that there is no pressure, only the freedom to be who God made you. Man-made religion will tell you that you have a responsibility to to deliver the results for the Lord. But your only responsibility is to shine as dearly loved children of God. So, do you see how far off the world can be to what the true message of hyper-grace or, as we know it, the message of exchange, the great exchange? That's what it is. And that's where we are. Thank God for this church. See, repentance is a gift of God. It's a gift. And God gives it to you when you acknowledge the truth. Because how can you change your mind? Because the natural mind's not subject to God, neither can it be. The only thing, only way you can repent is he gives you his mind. Scripture says we have the mind of Christ. Isn't that better? <laughs>